this episode is a bit of a personal indulgence, but what better forum than a podcast for sharing a personal indulgence? I spoke to Holly about using user research methods and user-centered methods to explore how to deliver psychological services better. Uh, As you know, I'm a psychologist, and so this episode was really interesting for me to think about the different touch points that we have in our service, uh, the way that we think about the end of our involvement and the variety of experiences that users might be having um, with how we interact with them. And I'm hoping that this episode is going to be of interest to all my psychology people, but also all of my business people and designers out there, because the principles that we're talking about, I suppose, could be applied to anything, really. You know, psychology is the vehicle for this episode, um, because it's my vehicle, you know, (laughs) it's my podcast and psychology is my vehicle. But equally, I think it could be interesting and useful for people working across sectors, really. And I'm excited to hear what you think. As always, you can holler at me on at JGE Taylor or sizzle at drjoetaylor.com. And you can also find Holly's information in the episode notes. So feel free to uh, tell her everything that you liked about this episode as well. Uh, from my point of view, this is marking the beginning, really, of something because I'm going to have conversations over the next year thinking about how we can deliver psychological services better. And at different key points, I'm going to get in touch with Holly and be like, hey, I've got something new to talk about. (laughs) And then we'll see how it goes from there. So it's quite possible that this will be the first of a kind of mini series thinking about using user research and user centered processes to dissect psychological services from my point of view. So without further ado, let's do this. I'm here with a person who probably has the best surname in the world. Thanks. Yes, true. Say it. Holly Challenger. Challenger. Actually, Holly Rose Challenger. I didn't know that. Yeah. Tell me about the Rose. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think my parents got really into like, you know, vegetation holly rose i didn't even think about that yeah yeah for me holly was less it less encapsulated a plant than rose yeah actually it means evergreen shrub fact it's an anglo-saxon name <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's it I'm that's out etymology there. is strong rose is just self-explanatory i think joe interpreter of dreams joseph is it mm. oh biblical it's my brother's name as well um, I like that interpreter of dreams. Yeah, I do. I feel like that's you as well. That that's another episode. That yeah. is another episode. Joe, interpreter of dreams. Next time on um, <laughs> 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 whatever it is you're calling yeah, this yeah, podcast. Exactly. Um yeah, and I didn't change it when I got married either, keeping that name. Yeah, why would you? Mm-hmm. I mean politically but also just like yeah. on a on a taste level. Yeah, it's just better than like, I'm a feminist, but I'm, I've got taste. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this episode really came about, as many great things do, from a conversation. Mm. Hmm. 
So Holly and I go on retreats together. Yeah, we do. Intrigue. And I was basically talking about how I feel like we don't necessarily deliver psychological services in the best way. I wasn't just musing. That's <laughs> that's my that's my job. And what I'm going to ask Holly to talk about in a second is her day job, which kind of meant that she was able to bring some really interesting thoughts to my thinking. And I was like, hold it there. Let's let's turn this into an episode. Yeah, mate. yeah, interesting chat. So I, I text Holly earlier being like, can we talk about, can we name your workplace? <laughs> it's actually top secret. Top secret. MI5. MI5, what or you said is it MI5? No, always get those two mixed up. They're both pretty secretive. Yeah, they are. Secret furniture. I was at Vauxhall earlier and I saw the MI6 building, the one with mm. the green glass. I know it. And you know what I realised was the flats next to it I have a similar time. green glass oh, I see. composition. And I was like, did they just order like yeah. way too much green glass? And they were like, what should we do now? Just like, or maybe that was part of it. They had to build some kind of social housing. Social housing next to it. Or it's like special bulletproof glass and they're like Maybe. James Bonding it up. Yeah, like you can't target us from the West. I also, by the way, don't work from my five or my no. six. And um, if you did, you wouldn't. I wouldn't be saying whacked it. it out. Or do I? No, I work somewhere called the Government Digital Service, um, which is well, was started about six years ago as like a kind of tech startup in government. So mm. um, I think we had this like vision of like transforming digital in government so transforming the way that like government delivers digital services um so yeah i've been there like four years i heard about gds because about uh five years ago i was doing some startup stuff and everyone was like gov.uk yeah uk it's like the best site ever yeah and um that was you guys it was us so there were like i don't know 300 plus different government websites before GovUK came along, before GDS came along. And um, we basically took, like, all of the content on those different 300 websites and made them into one website so that, like, you don't have to understand, like, which government department runs the service Mm. or offers the benefit that you want to apply for. Like, you just go to one place and you can search for it. Um, So that's where we started. Like, we started with GovUK and we started with these... 25 exemplar services so they were like 25 really high volume services so like really large impact services like um, I want to renew my passport Mm. I want to apply for a driving license and they were like uh, services that other government departments were like delivering at the time or had like really old legacy IT systems and we went in and we worked with them to like make those services better Mm. Um, and then like we kind of have made loads of guidance and training for people from like what we've learned about that and we basically apply like user-centered design principles to that approach which I feel like is what you're interested in mm. today so like I suppose let's start with defining that what is what is mm. that user-centered design so I mean this is one of those things where I'm gonna like do a really bad job of um explaining this on the spot but what you can't see is Holly Holly's got a big pad of paper <laughs> writing notes <laughs> Um, I haven't written anything down beforehand. It's basically uh, designing for the end user. So um, especially in the work that we do, like everything is, um, everything revolves around this idea of user needs. So like what is the like end goal that the user Mm. wants to achieve? Um, And who is the particular user of our service? Like what 
what motivations do they have? Like, what context are they in? Like, what skills do they have? What knowledge? Um, what are their expectations? Um, and then we design for those users. So um, that involves like doing a lot of research, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like upfront research where you might like go into people's homes or their workplaces and really understand their lives. You might do diary studies with them where you get like really rich qualitative mm-hmm. information about these particular users. So like an example might be like people who claim carers allowance. So like what is it like to be a carer? Like what kind of context are they in? Um, what kind of digital capability do they have? And then like working really, really closely with designers to like prototype ideas and mm-hmm. test those ideas really, really early on with the target user. So like everything you do is about like um I guess reducing as much friction as possible and making things as user friendly as possible. Um and like the old school way of building like IT, um at least in government, was like, I don't know, get a big supplier and like um sign into a five year contract where they would like build this big system or this big platform for you. And, like, it wouldn't be until, like, the end of the five years that they would ever put it in front of the user mm. and test whether it actually worked. So, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't actually meet what we wanted it oh, to meet. turns out we spent millions of pounds on it. Mm. So we try and, like, release regularly and do really early prototyping. So, like, that might be, like, paper prototyping. So you don't even need to, like, have built it. It doesn't mm. really need to be high fidelity, but you want to, like, test the concept with someone um, or other, like, so this kind of thing is called like design research, I guess, this kind of element of it. And it doesn't even have to be like paper prototyping or like um, a coded prototype. It could You could like prototype an experience. So it might be like you're redesigning your library service in your local authority and you mm. might like prototype an area where you're like testing some concepts of like how people interact with a service or something. You learn a lot by like having that stimulus mm. where people have something to like walk around. I think that's it's, that's so wicked for so many different reasons. When you the when you were describing user centered experiences, it made me feel exactly like the heart of what psychology is about. Mm. In the sense that once we meet a client or you know service user, yeah, we do truly put them at the center of that consultation mm-hmm. or that assessment yeah and so when we're face to face with people actually that's within our capability that's what we do is kind of like bring them into the discussions bring them into the processes yeah, yeah. and try and prioritize and capture their views mm-hmm. um and it does it does feel like we co-construct but i feel like we're doing that within a process which doesn't necessarily make it uh, as easy as possible for that to happen okay uh, so i feel like we're demonstrating that kind of practice within a system that doesn't necessarily make like that practice support that or... exactly mm. um and so i suppose what i think would be cool is for us to have a conversation about how what are the different i remember you i remember in our initial conversation you talked about like touch points or things like that yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know how how do people engage with this process yeah, yeah. And, and so i suppose in terms of like framing this conversation i would hope to leave with some ideas of things i need to do next in okay. terms of um conversations or people i need to talk to yeah or local authorities i need to get in touch with because mm-hmm. and i'm sure we'll cover this but this is one of the interesting things is there's so much variety across okay. local authorities yeah. 
um, which is both great and also tricky when mm. we think about stuff like this. Yeah, I mean, it's cool in that there might be pockets of really good practice or like where they've like trialed different approaches. Maybe, mm. like, I don't know. That would be worth finding out. Mm. It would be helpful for me for us to talk about this, to like know a little bit more about like what it's like to be an educational psychologist. So, like, you've just finished your doctorate, right? Mm. You've been doing this for like a few years now in training. And I don't really know that would help me like structure what we're talking about to like know what that is and what does that do so again it it varies so like just to give a kind of potted overview there are some local authorities that are traded and what that means is that money comes from government to schools and then they choose to spend it on what they want and they will buy in psychological services other local authorities receive the money direct from government and then we'll split it up amongst schools to fund their services, um, their psychological services. So that's kind of like a broad uh, discrepancy. It it does seem like the trend is local authorities going towards a traded model. Mm. Um, And I suppose that kind of, it it fits in with um, academization and that kind of like um, devolution of of funding and, and responsibility. So in terms of, my experience of three local authorities mm. um and i feel like this experience will will cover a, a broad range of local authorities as well so it will be useful as an overview or like a, a best fit um in terms of psych- psychologist work there'll be statutory stuff that we have to do by law okay um and i'll talk about that in a second and traded stuff which we deliver to schools um based upon what they buy us in to do okay. Um, and then there are other ways of kind of cutting that up. So there might be kind of core time, which we offer to schools uh, for free to kind of do uh, logistical stuff like planning the work we're going to do. Okay. Um, but broadly speaking, there are these kind of two pillars of statutory work and traded work. And the statutory work is essentially if a child has uh, enough different needs or like a, a high enough level of needs they will um, be put forward by the school for an assessment for an education healthcare plan. Okay. And that plan kind of brings together education, health and social care and, and kind of writes up all of the needs, um, agrees on the level of need and agrees on the provision that would be useful and then sets aside a, a certain added chunk of money to help meet that. Okay. So that's kind of a statutory process. Yeah. Um, and so... Some some local authorities, that's all they do. Yeah. Um, and the local authorities that I've experienced, there's that. And then there's also the schools that you work in will buy in a certain amount of your time. And then you'll have meetings with them about how they use that time. Okay. Uh, and kind of within that, it could be um, staff training. It could be individual work with a student. Right. And most commonly, it will be... Um, some kind of assessment of a child so not necessarily cognitive assessment but it could be like observation or working with them or doing dynamic assessment but that process normally follows a kind of plan do review cycle so you have um, a meeting with family and staff together to kind of talk about the needs and and the the situation Um, you might meet the child at that point as well to get a sense of their their feeling and their views yeah and then you might observe the child 
come up with some ideas of things that might work and then you have a feedback meeting with family and school mm-hmm. to talk about things you might want to put in place and then you'll review that kind of say six weeks later mm-hmm. so you kind of have these these three pillars of contact with okay. um school and family yeah and and throughout that depending on the work and, and the needs of the child you'll kind of weave in uh working with the child at different points okay so that's kind of a, a rough overview yeah in, like, the simplest case of um of how of how we work so in that case like you've done you do an assessment um and then when you said you like you might meet with the child in between that time like in between those meetings like what what are you doing with them are you like you're not doing assessments but you're kind of like you're working with them or you're like talking with them or what so like assessment is uh, a term that I view as quite loaded because oh, okay. it makes me think of like cognitive assessments. Yeah. Um, and so we might be doing assessment, which is just, uh, you know, working with coloured blocks to be right. like, OK, um, you know, can this child attend to a task? Can they follow okay. two part instructions? Do they know colours? Can they count? Okay. Um, you know, looking at kind of quite basic cognitive processes through that. Yeah. Um, we could also be. Uh, inverted commas assessing through an observation and thinking about the kind of the class and the the pupils around them the types of teaching style that they respond to the types of mediation that works um we might also get their view about how things are going um so you know we have lots of different ways to approach that um and we might also do a a kind of standardized cognitive assessment as well depending on the the needs of the child what kind of thing would prompt like a school to think like this child has has particular needs and and might might need an assessment like what what kind of needs Mm. so again I mean it it really varies uh, and and this is one of the interesting things about the job but typical things that I might hear Mm. are um this child struggles to pay attention okay this child can't read uh this child um misbehaves mm. you know and, and obviously we're beneath that we'll mm. be we'll be wondering you know what's causing this behavior but okay. often we kind of uh will be alerted to kind of externalized presentation yeah, yeah. um and so it could be it could be anything from the things that i've talked about or um you know they're, they're struggling to interact with their peers um or they get emotional during lessons mm. um so a kind of a range of yeah, a range of kind of behaviours. Okay. Such a um, lovely job. Yeah, it is. Sometimes it's a bit sad. You know, sometimes yeah. you work with some quite uh, difficult situations. But I think a lovely job, that should be our catch line. Yeah, <laughs> hashtag lovely job. So why do you feel like um, this area is ripe for sort of a user-centred or like service design approach? Like you kind of mentioned before, like that you feel like it's maybe got more potential or so I suppose the first the first thing is the statutory process that I talked about um has it's only really been the process we've been using since 2014 okay so it's quite new um and when I talk to psychologists and, and when I go through the process myself I do feel like we've perhaps lost a little sight of the original aims that brought about the change in process so at the moment if a child is put forward for assessment for EHCP we will 
education healthcare plan. I love that you did that yourself. I didn't even need to ask. (laughs) Acronym alert, people. (laughs) Self-censoring. Yeah, you got got to. Um, And they're put forward to that. And and if the local authority agrees that there's sufficient need for an assessment, they'll go, okay, we're going to assess. So then professionals will get a kind of the bat signal. It's like, okay, cool. So we need to gather some kind of information about this child. Yeah. And there'll be an initial meeting. And in the initial meeting, we'll talk about what existing information there is and whether we need to collect more and if we need to involve other professionals or not. And then there'll be a period of time where we kind of scurry around collecting information, um, the family be involved to kind of gather as much information as possible, the child too. And then we'll have an outcomes meeting where we'll bring all that together and the the spirit of the legislation is around mm-hmm. bringing the information to the meeting and coming up with outcomes together. So the mm-hmm. family will be there, the child, if it's appropriate, will be there. Um, and that as a process seems really great to me, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, however, often what happens is we'll have a situation where, um, you know, the initial meeting may happen, it may not happen. Okay. Um, if it happens, it might be... Um, just filling out a part of the plan, which is kind of all about me. So like gathering information as opposed to thinking about what information we have already and, and you know, what. Oh, okay. and then in the outcomes meeting, quite often what I see happening is people bring recommendations mm-hmm. and it's like, all right, cool. So we're going to go to the speech and language therapist. Here are my recommendations. Mm-hmm. The educational psychologist, here are my recommendations. And then we'll look to the parent and be like, you, you agree with that? You know, is that, is that all right? Okay. And and so that's kind of, it's quite different from the original intention. Mm. Um, so, so that there's that. Mm. Um, and there's also a kind of a second thing around the fact that at the moment, um, children are getting seen if a school feel like they're a priority. So quite often what happens in planning meetings is we'll have a list of like 30 kids. Wow. And I'll get to work with like the top three or mm. five or, you know, however many. And so I just wonder if that's the best mm. model. Yeah. Um, and and I also, and this is just off the top of my head and I don't even know how I think about it, but I think that we, we use schools at the moment as our kind of hub, mm. right? And I think that that's really amazing in a lot of ways. Mm. But something we were talking about, before we started recording was the uh um the parent drop-ins right and the idea that actually there are kind of instances where parents will come to psychologists directly mm. without going through the school first yeah. and that does seem to be helpful in a way yeah and so the impression i get is that there's been this kind of uh layering of of kind of on top of legacy processes yeah. and so that's why i have this broad question at the moment of how can we deliver psychological services better? Yeah. Because I I don't know if we're doing it as well as we could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it's really structured around the institution of the school at the moment. And that, like, you know, maybe that is the best way to do it. Mm. But, like, I guess it would be interesting to understand, like, how it could work better for all of those involved. So mm. a lot of the, like sort of end-to-end service design like transformation that we do is kind of looking at like all of the different like actors or users involved so like all of the different staff that are involved Mm. like including teachers like yourself 
different ed psychs like you mentioned speech and language Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, specialists as well like parents children like what like what do they want to get out of that like what what is like what's the goal for all of those people Mm. um and I think like if you were to do like some work around like trying to answer this question that you have I think part of that work that you would need to do would be to like speak to all of those different users or mm. stakeholders you know to, to understand like what's their experience of this current process like what's good about it what works and why but like also where is it that they feel like they're not communicated with if they're the parent for instance or like you know they don't actually have any ownership over the outcome that comes mm. out because they haven't been involved or mm. like or like maybe even for the ed psychs you know where is it that they're spending loads of time on paperwork which means they could see more students or pupils or whatever like so it's it's not always just about the end user like understanding the pain points of like the staff that deliver this service can help you understand like where transformation might happen in a kind of back office way um I think that's really that's really helpful and I'm going to kind of distill a takeaway for myself um, mm. which is um that I need to kind of compile a list of all of the yeah. stakeholders yeah um because actually there there are so many you know yeah. I'm thinking about teachers and support staff and the way that we kind of engage them mm. in meetings um because it's it's a it's a tricky one because it's so useful for us to collect that information. Okay. And yet sometimes I know that they feel a little bit like pressured with the time that they give because okay. it's a, you know, taking an hour out of a school day yeah. is, a, is a big chunk. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, mm. I think that's a really useful thing to think about. Um, you also made me think about reporting. Mm. So the way, and this is like, this is the golden uh, topic um, in terms of when I talk to psychologists, we always end up talking about reports and yeah. like the best way to do reports. And there does seem to be a kind of a never ending piece of thinking there around like the best way to write them okay. and the best way to deliver them because mm. is giving someone a written report, mm. the best way to ensure that recommendations are carried out right. and like actually like who's the end who's the audience for that report yeah quite and we do we do do a lot of thinking about the types of people that are going to read the report but if I imagine like a process of working with a a child like end to end yeah I I feel that sometimes we might think that the delivery of that report is the end point and that's not the end point you know um so that's where we like I guess a service designer would talk about like the the goal of the user like um and that might be I don't know I guess for the parent it might be to like for my child to be in a better place in terms of their like concentration or their attention at school or to Mm. be in a better emotional situation something or like or for the child it might be to like enjoy school more or to feel like I'm doing better with my peers or something so it's like really like not about their interaction with like a particular like individual or service professional it's like me and my life mm. and then like an actual service which is the one that you're delivering should be about like enabling them to meet that goal mm. and mm. like the report is like 
is like one touch point or interaction or like output in that but yeah like seeing like often these things like you said like don't get they get lost in translation Mm -hmm. or like end up being like the final output especially when we're like stretched with how much Mm -hmm. work we have or whatever yeah it's interesting this year I've been kind of uh going backwards and forwards on the best way to do reports Mm -hmm. like with psychologists um but something I've been experimenting with is um the idea of doing a write-up at the end but in the initial conversation where we kind of are gathering all that rich um rich information from different sources thinking about recommendations at that point Mm. that can be started with and and kind of depending whether they work or not provide more information and then feeding back after the observation or the assessment work or whatever we've done um and then that also being a point where there's a dissemination of ideas and recommendations. So actually, by the time they're getting the full report they for the review, already. yeah, they've already been working on things. And yeah. so I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's quite useful in terms mm. of it, it's almost like a consistent process. Mm. Um, of, it's iterative. It, it, it's lean to use some, use some startup tech term. Um, yeah. And I think like, I don't know, something that occurs to me, like, so, I mean, this is, like a methodology we sometimes use when we're testing like the usability of something like so it might be testing a bit of an online transaction or website a bit of content or a bit of guidance on gov.uk like a method that we use is called the highlighter test um and we get like you know the end user of a particular bit of content to go through it with like i don't know two or three different colored highlighters and to highlight the things that they like that makes them feel more comfortable, like confident in the mm. thing or less confident in the thing or things that they're really like clear that they understand and things that they're just like, I really don't know mm. why I'm being told this. And I feel like it might be interesting to do something like that with like, you know, your report might be used by like teachers and parents and, and they might like all need to use this in a different yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there also might be bits of the reports that are like alienating parents or they're really unclear and like I'm really unhelped like but these are all hypotheses at the moment like that would be the kind of thing where you could really unpick like how can we make reports like most useful Mm. so yeah I think that's almost uh, a a sub question love it Um, and in terms of distilling another takeaway for me there's something there around using the highlighter test process with reports I mean can you imagine how amazing it would be if parents maybe even children and teachers mm-hmm. were not only thinking about what is useful or what helps them feel included or what might alienate them but like also stuff like I wish I could have known this earlier yeah. or you know whatever it is in terms of the timeliness of the information yes. yeah yeah because I do get the feeling that you know sometimes I've given a report to a school and it's like I mean this would have been useful maybe like a week ago right or or I, I write up a report for a school, basically just summarizing what I've mm. done with them and what we've done, you know, what we've done together, and like the fact it's happened. So, and it is it. So it is important to have yeah, that as a document. Like a record. But like, I suppose, just acknowledging that there, there's going to be almost a Venn diagram yeah. there in terms of like the different users and the and the way the way that reports are written, but also like the different types of information that are appropriate at different points. Yeah. And I feel like at the moment, 
honest piece of reflection here. I'm doing that kind of on instinct or like intuitively mm. what's yeah, useful. Yeah, yeah, it sounds for... like you're doing a lot of like good work already, thinking about like what are the needs of the people that I'm working with? How can I communicate with them in the best way? And I think that's like an, like another like sub-question of this, mm-hmm. um, which might be really interesting to think about, like almost to be a focus. Um, if you wanted to have like a more focused question, like, you know, how might we like deliver information to parents, like in a way that's like timely and like most useful for them mm. to like actually take action on. And like that could like let you explore like, you know, the format of the report, but also like other, like we talked about touch points earlier, but like other points in the journey where like they're communicated with or like how empowered they feel to do yeah. stuff. Um, I really like that. It also made me think that at the moment we're using like inverted commas the report mm-hmm. to fulfil a lot of functions. Yeah, and maybe that is the best thing. But equally, if we knew more explicitly the different functions it was serving, perhaps some of those functions could be better served at a different yeah. point in the journey, yeah. or with a different tool. Yeah, um, you know, like a phone call or you know a sum a, a summary or you know any whatever. whatever. And, like, often, like, when – so, like, most services start because there's a bit of policy or legislation that, like, initiates this thing, mm-hmm. right? So, like, government says, like, we should do this. This is a good thing. Like, let's let's write a policy about it. Like, often then, like, services are, like, not really even designed, but, like, someone, like, interprets that legislation at mm-hmm. some point and a service is born mm-hmm. um, because, like, suddenly we're legally obliged to do this thing. But, like – often things like reports come out of the fact that like there's a bit of the legislation that says like we need to document what's happened here so Mm. that like you know when there's a child protection incident or something like we have some record of what was happened and and who was involved Mm. but like that doesn't necessarily mean that that tool or that artifact should be the like focus like I don't know I'm using the report as an example yeah yeah but yeah like often it's like a legacy thing, as you said, it's a like, or like a direct interpretation of, of a bit of legislation. Mm-hmm. Like maybe somewhere it says like there has to be something written in that way, which is often like difficult when you're trying to redesign it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, but we don't want it to be communicated in that way. Like we want it to be like emailed or text or, you know, for yeah, it to be yeah. more informal. Um, so yeah, that's a question for me to, to look at. I feel like, local authorities have different policies on reports. Okay, oh, really? Um, so I do wonder where that comes from, like yeah. the root of that. Yeah. Um, I am, And I imagine, this is quite a relatively uninformed view, but I imagine it's come from um, the fact that EPs used to do pretty much just standardised assessments. That That's the kind of history oh, of the really? profession. And so the report would be where that was written down, you know? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the work that we do in government is kind of, I don't know, take, so like the carer's allowance service, like I think the old paper form for if you wanted to apply for carers, like I'm going to get this wrong, but it was something crazy like 30 pages long. Yeah. And now it's like, not to blow our own trumpet, but it's like this really streamlined. Thing. Streamlined. Streamlined. Um, Cut to the chase, how many pages? Like I don't know the top of my head, but like <laughs> basically the team that worked on that like went through the old like I don't know with like lawyers from DWP with people who like knew the policy inside and out and like interrogated like why do we need to ask this question Mm. like what what 
function is this serving? Um, actually, do we have this information about this user from somewhere else within the department? Like, yeah. And do we need to get them to fill it in? And actually, a lot of the time, if you interrogate these things and you go back far enough, it's like, actually, the person that processes the carer's allowance application ignores that question. So if you go and, like, observe the caseworkers in DWP processing those applications, you'll, like, find out actually what information they're using. Yes. So that's where, like... I don't know, like, what happens with those reports, so, but, but, like, maybe that would also be a key to, like, understand what's, like, essential, mm. what's an essential component of that. I love that. So as well as the highlighter test, there's something around, um, and, you know, we could get this information in different ways, but yeah. what are different users doing with those reports? Mm. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for example, on certain panels, they might just be reading the summary right. and the recommendations. Or if you're the Senko in a school, you might just be reading like the introduction, the summary and the yeah. recommendations or a couple of the recommendations. Yeah. Um, and if you're a parent, who knows? Because actually, like, if I'm honest, I'm not sure exactly. Right. You know, yeah. like sometimes we'll have conversations about it, but sometimes those conversations can be a bit uh, broad. Right. Um, so that's, a, yeah, that's a really great thing to think about. And also like, you know, is there a user of it? who might refer to it, like, a year down the line. I don't know. Like, if yeah, something else happens. happens, like, there might be things that prompt them to be used in a different way. Like, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's good to, like, um, so I guess we talk about, like, zooming out and zooming in with mm. this kind of work. So, like, you zoom out a lot, like, you look at, like, what constraints there might be in the policies and like, the legisl- legislation that, like, frames this work and you look, like, really, really broad and then you, like, might zoom in really, really close to, like, one area of the service but you kind mm-hmm. of, like, need to maybe keep doing that to kind of understand what the scope of change might be. Yeah, that's really cool. And we sometimes use a tool called the rich picture. Okay. Which is kind of, it's from soft system methodology. So it's kind of just like you described trying to get a sense of all the different systems at play in, mm. in, uh, in an organization or a context. And, you know, one, one stream of that might be, you know, the life cycle of a report because yeah. you're, you're completely right. Five years down the line, yeah. the ed psych report might get, that's educational psychologist people, <laughs> the ed psych report might yeah. get picked out and it's like, okay, well, you know, like when they go to high school, like maybe it's useful to exactly. someone there. Or yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. There could be lots of different, lots so of different reasons. Like if I was doing this, or if like I was saying how you should do it, like one way to approach that would be to like get like lots of different stakeholders who you like, you know, have a hypothesis, like are a kind of user of that report or in some way, get them in a room and like do a kind of workshop where you talk mm. about like all of the different circumstances or users of that and like get other people to feed your answer for that and like yeah. I think a tool that we use in user research and 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 sort of user-centered design more generally is something called a, a user journey map so like through like I would suggest interviews with parents um teachers like ed sykes um like whoever else is involved in that journey like teaching assistants like through interviews with them about their experiences of this process and that might be like people who've just gone through this process mm. if they're a parent um, or like, you know, teachers that are like really experienced doing this kind of thing. Um, you can kind of construct like 
common common tasks or touch points so you end up with like a journey um, and that might like be made up of a series of like transactions or touch points so it might be like phone calls it might be an actual meeting it might Uh, be an assessment at the end might be a report or an outcome meeting but then like below that on another swim lane you've got like their emotional state at those different points uh, to understand like what's really distressing for them uh, what's like what's like a massive like drain on their time if they're a teacher and like what tools are they interacting with like what systems they're using to help them do their work uh, like that's that's the kind of thing that can really help you think about the whole because you'll end up with like loads of information um and that can kind of help I guess visualize like this thing which Mm. is a really complicated like mess of different people and information yeah yeah yeah. I'm almost imagining like uh, a slightly more jazzy Gantt chart yeah yeah um, also use the term swim lane yeah so that's like a row Yes. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's really good. The emotional... Have you heard of... Um, is he called Ray Dalio? No. Um, this guy is a really successful venture capitalist. Okay, I'm writing this down. in his company, they have concocted different uh, software to allow people to record their emotional states at different points during the day. So uh, everyone has an iPad. Okay. And so then somehow they'll crunch that data and it'll be like, Holly, we've noticed that clusters of your anxiety at work mm. come after conversations with Joe. <laughs> he stresses me out. He stresses you out. And then that <laughs> might be a prompt to be like, huh, why? Wow, that's so cool. And um, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a little bit uh, mechanical, yeah. but I, but it made me, it made me think, you made me think of that when you were talking about the emotional states at different points in yeah. the journey. Um, because I do... I do wonder when a Senko gets this report and it's, you know, three or four pages and they're busy, right. how do they, you know, do they feel empowered or do they feel slightly overwhelmed? Yeah. Um, do they feel like pressured because, yeah. oh, well, here are these expectations now and I need to find the resources right. to make them happen. You know, how, and obviously in an ideal world, you have those conversations, but mm. when they actually receive the report, I don't know how they feel. And I think so, like in user research, we talk a lot about the difference between what people say they do and what they do. Yeah. Um, And so it's often really problematic to ask, depending on who you are as well, and like whether they feel okay saying to you that, like, actually, they don't actually do anything with that Mm. report and they never actually read it. Right. Which is like quite possible in some cases, maybe with parents, could be a thing. But like, are you ever going to say to your ed, ed psych, like, oh, I never read it? Yeah. So there's that, like, mismatch between reported behaviour. And so there's something, like, I guess we're always trying to do in this kind of work, which is, like, really get to the heart of what people actually do. Mm. And so there are ways that you can approach that through different research methodologies. Like, you can do, like, you can ask people to, like, keep diary studies, like, whilst they're in like experience Mm. um and that might be a more truthful like representation of like what they actually do at a given time um but it also might help you think about like so we we kind of like when we ask people questions about like 
their actual behaviors or their emotional responses we ask for like specifics so like when was the last time you looked at it like Mm. when was they like they might say oh yeah like yeah I looked at that yeah I I tend to look at that when people talk in those kind of generalizations Mm. like it's helpful to sort of say well like when was the last time you logged in and it might be like oh actually like I haven't logged in for like months how strange I, yeah my so, last login seems to be yeah it kind of turns out like I don't actually care about that thing mm. but I've told you that I do so yeah I mean that must be a familiar concept to you like um in psychology as well just that like people lie and they don't mean to lie they don't yeah. set out to lie but we do all kind of lie all the time about what we do because we kind of want to be seen to be people that do good things or do the right thing but totally you know. well we also have a bias towards remembering certain yeah events and certain activities yeah yeah um and you know thinking about um ideal selves and possible selves and yeah that doesn't always match up with the reality of right. what what happens you yeah know? and i think that's why like also in hindsight when you're reflecting on an experience you might like gloss over certain bits because maybe it ends well but actually the bit in the middle was really distressing and so like I don't know, interviews with people at different stages of the journey or, like, ways that you can capture feedback regularly through an experience, Mm. like, um, are helpful because, yeah, people, like, remember things badly. So distilling a takeaway, i said that three times now. I love it. Um, Also, it makes me feel like an actual edible experience now, distilling a takeaway. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's like distilling alcohol but with an Indian... We just just eat dal as well. Yeah, dal dal on the mind. Distill that dal. At uni, there was a a van which would come around after hours when everything was closed and sell alcohol for like really? a much a much marked up rate. Wow. Yeah. Um. Distill distill takeaway. Distill takeaway. So, That's a little startup idea for you. <laughs> You're welcome. They got the market unlocked. I think they were called yeah. the Booze Brothers as well. Wow. It's a great name. Um, Sounds well dodge. I mean. They're familial. <laughs> <laughs> Was it like in an ice cream van or something? <laughs> yeah. Cover. We've got this van. It sells ice cream during the day. <laughs> it's just sitting there at night. Mr. Whippy. Not. Nah. So the still takeaway is around thinking about users who are at different points in the journey. Yeah. But also I really like your idea around methods which help gather data consistently so yeah. for example the diaries yeah um because you know it might not be perfect day to day but across a load of diaries actually that will kind of give you useful insight you wouldn't have gathered otherwise yeah and you can do really fun stuff with diaries like i mean especially i don't know if like kids would ever be your like research participants here like whether that would be appropriate and it and it might not be and also like you know you sometimes need to think about like the impact of the research on the experience as well mm-hmm. like there's a thing but um you can do really fun things with diary studies or you can make them really easy so i know people who've done like diary studies kind of in whatsapp so mm-hmm. you're basically just like asking people to like send a message at the end yeah. of the day on like how or like you prompt them with like three questions about something or like the other kind of end of the spectrum is like you give them this like printed out booklet that is like engaging and they kind of have to fill in Mm. and it's like it's got yeah again different prompts or different smiley faces to like so they don't have to like necessarily have the words to talk about what's going on which i'm sure you're all over when Mm. you're like it's like all over that you'd be great 
I like what I like WhatsApp because it's there's that immediacy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, yeah, I'd have to think about um, the appropriate method. But yes, smiley faces, smiley faces all over the shop. Like um, universal. So universal. <laughs> I feel like we've kind of covered. We have covered a lot, and I feel like I have some really good next steps. You do. Um, <laughs> Even though I say it myself. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, I, I feel like I need to. So what? What you can't see is this kind of wonderful, <laughs> really scrappy <laughs> piece of A three. <laughs> um, I need to. I need to look at that. Yeah, um, I've written loads of shit down. I mean, stuff. I think something I would say, like before we like go on just whilst I remember is that like you have a lot of like reckons or like hypotheses at this point about where failure points are and or like what might not be working could work in a different way like the reports or whatever and I think it's important for yourself to remember like that they're just hypotheses at the moment Mm. and you're either trying to validate them or invalidate them Mm. and like actually you know, the failure points here might be something completely different. And so everything you do needs to be, like, really open and exploratory to begin with. Because Mm. you might find, like, the problem is, like, with this really specific bit that's, like, the first phone call or I don't know. And Mm. and it it might not be, like, most likely it's this thing that you might not have even, like, thought about. And so stay open to, like, not solutionising too early which is what I'm always trying to get teams that I'm working with to like not do mm. because then you're like you'll see the answers that you want to see totally in the yeah. questions you ask so I've just done a viva for my doctorate well done well done I hear it went really well I mean a little bird talk. Oof, um, Oof. it's such a relief um, well done so validating though <laughs> Um, but yeah I mean obviously as part of that process I had to reflect on the research process that I used during my doctorate and um, I think yeah that that's a piece of thinking I can do in terms of how to make sure what are the fail safes that that Mm -hmm. allow me to kind of reflect on my own research process yeah you know and that that might be conversations with people like you it might be Mm -hmm. using my research journal yeah yeah. um, and chatting to other psychologists, you know, just about challenging assumptions. Totally, and it's that, like, level of reflection of, like, what bias am I bringing Mm. into this? Like, what am I always being, like, with this question or with this statement, like, what am I assuming is true? And, um, yeah. Also, this this strikes me as participatory research in the sense that, you know, essentially... I have so many questions about where to start. Mm. Um, I would imagine one of the best ways of, of... answering some of those questions is by actually talking to the people yeah. um, to work out what might be the most appropriate yeah. kind of things to focus on. Yeah. Um, which is a really nice, a really nice starting point uh, and almost a really nice kind of cliffhanger oh, for this conversation. I like it. Maybe we'll like come back to this when you've done a bit of like uh, discovery. I'll have, I'll have some drawn scrappy pieces of paper of my own. Yeah. And like, exactly. And I think like, you know, when you do that kind of initial research, like you might find like there's a particular area that's problematic. And that's after that, that's when you can start thinking about like alternative service design ideas. So like that's when like solutions do come into it. And then you're trying to like 
validate like is this solution or approach or mm. the right one and like what stimulus or prototype might you use to try and like prove or disprove that that's true and that might be like a different style of report and then getting feedback on it or whatever but like so there's there's a place for solutions but it's definitely after this mm. kind of initial and that's really fun and that's the fun bit that's the fun bit i feel like i've seen like an hourglass mm-hmm. does that ring bells mm. like if you imagine an hourglass horizontal it's kind of two two triangles right yeah and the the first long end is almost all of the potential problems yes and then you narrow down to the the top of that mm-hmm. horizontal triangle yeah um and that might be the most important problem to think about yeah and then you expand out of that uh into the kind of sides of the the next horizontal triangle yeah no, I, and I that's kind of what are the potential solutions and then then what would the end be maybe the applications um i think also like once you have one bit of it kind of nailed like you can start to think about adding bits onto it so it might be you like solve or improve like the main interaction but actually there are lots of like other interactions with it but we often think about like the mvp or like the minimum viable thing so like what's the what's the main thing that Mm. has to work and then like you might add on like i don't know an interface for teachers or something afterwards i don't know it's like more of a secondary thing or at least for what you're looking at yeah i so I tweeted out about this. Yeah. Just being like, so, like, here's a broad question I have. What do people think? <laughs> yeah. And what I got back was like, that's a broad question. <laughs> this is such a psychological response. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. I see your question. Here's a question. <laughs> um, mm. So I feel like now there, there's a kind of a clearer sense of some narrowed down sort yeah, of questions. I think um, there are. And so that, that could be a, a nice starting point for kind of getting other psychologists input yeah um but i'll have to stay mindful of, about kind of counterbalancing that with yeah um services of different kinds yeah um, and, I, and i like what you said earlier on about all of the different people involved because right. actually you know throughout this process there are loads of people involved yeah um and they've all blatantly got different experiences of it and I guess, like, improving, like, if you kind of ignore one of the main groups there, like, you could you could come up with a great way of, like, redesigning it, but then cause a lot of pain for, like, teachers, for example. And then and actually, like, it's never going to work. It's never going to be viable. Mm. It's, like, it doesn't work for them and it isn't easy for them. Yeah. You're going to make it harder for them. It's, like, um, yeah. And I think, like, narrow down questions, like, I think there's definitely something about, like, So I guess I'd suggest, like, any kind of narrow-down question, like, don't mention a specific tool or, like, interaction point specifically, like, but maybe it's more, like, um, I don't know, like, how can, like, information, like, how might we better deliver information to parents rather than, like, how could we improve reports? Because it might be that, like, the report is the wrong thing. So it's, like, make it, like, agnostic of a solution, you know? Mm. I can't remember what the other one was. We had another question that we were, like, thought might be a sub-question. I've forgotten what it was. I didn't write it down. Sorry, Joe. Well, I mean, luckily, we've been recording the whole conversation. Oh, it turns out we have. Yeah. 
Um, I think it's really exciting. I think there's like a huge amount of like potential here, and I guess um, I'd be really like interested to talk to you again. Man, I love this. This is the power of conversations because before this chat, I was viewing it as like a solo single yeah. thing, and now I feel like we have this kind of almost like okay. a a working group man yes this is like a podcast working group yeah everyone's like I want to tune in and find out like I think it's basically serial yeah it's like serial for research I would say it's as gripping as that uh and I think like (laughs) did he he do it did Joe do it um I want to know like where you realised that you were wrong with stuff nice that's the stuff that's like that's where we learn and we have to challenge our assumptions and stuff. Mm. And like, so <laughs> I recorded an episode earlier about yoga yeah. and completely went 360 on my judgment. Oh, really? And I've realized I come in with so much judgment at the beginning of the conversation. And so, huh. yeah, next time we chat, uh, there will be lots of, yeah. man, I was being so judgy. Yeah. Um, or just like, uh, all that stuff about what people say they do and what they really do. And so like, yeah, that's like true. there's all these blind spots that we have. Okay, so ne- next chat, <laughs> where Joe was wrong. Yeah, where Joe was wrong. <laughs> I think that would be really fun for me. Maybe me feel good. Yeah, yeah, nice, validating. Thanks, Joe. I've really enjoyed this. Holly, thank you. What a, what a great um, <laughs> second episode. I forgot episode. that we had like a microphone at all. Point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so natural. Um, it, it blends into the, <laughs> what you can't see on the table is kind of these wonderful bowls of snacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also random plants. This is all.